Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. A gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Mom or Pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, Welcome to the Dead Zone. Welcome back, all you late-night weirdos. That's Danny over there. I'm Whitney, and this is the Dead Zone Screening Room. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm hanging in there. How are you? Uh, I'm hanging in there as well. It's been a little bit of a difficult week, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to address that real quick if I could, and then we'll get right into today's episode. So before we get started today, I'd like to take a moment to honor my Uncle Fred. I mentioned him in episode six when we talked about Night of the Living Dead. He passed last Sunday on Easter, And he played such a big role in my love of the world of entertainment, all aspects of it, including film, television, and music. It's because of his involvement in that world and me getting to experience some of that work with him, whether that was going with him to a recording studio in Dallas, listening to his stories about working on a big production film, or watching him work in his own home studio, which is something I now do on a bi-weekly basis. That all played a huge role in the inspiration and desire to do this podcast. So to my favorite uncle, thank you for inspiring an interest in me that continues to bring me such joy to this day. I can confidently say there would be no Dead Zone Drive-In without our very own Wonder Boy. And today's episode is for you, poor little Freddie which is the nickname he gave himself after my mother was born because now she got all the intention, Uh, which in her defense, she's very cute. She is very cute. So is he. (laughs) He was precious. But not to worry. Today it's all about you, and this episode is dedicated to you. And he would have loved this one. You know, he wasn't a huge fan of horror, Mm -hmm. but he can definitely get behind some classic Hitchcock. So... I'm ready to get into it, are you? Yeah, I'm absolutely ready. Well, just to recap, a few months ago, Danny and I inherited a traveling drive-in theater and were told to watch horror movies of our choosing to figure out what to add to the theater's vault and what to leave behind in the dead zone. The only other rule is to never be late opening the drive-in for those who are able to find us because, oh yeah, the theater moves around. It's never in the same place twice and it's a mystery as to where it'll show up next. But if you can use your knowledge of horror and follow the clues in each episode, you might be able to figure out where the drive-in will show up next. And for our first movies, we're going with the classics and have deferred to one of the definitive names in horror culture and are using online horror magazine Bloody Disgusting's list of the best horror movies of all time. And this week... We're doing one of the best. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a reason that this is number three on the list. <laughs> it is Alfred Hitchcock's classic, Psycho. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And you had never seen it before. Yeah, it was one of those movies that I swore that I had seen it. In, but I remember a while back we had discussed it. And I think that I had realized I had never seen it. It was one of those things that... It's been so long. We have another podcast, Creepy Caffeine, where we've actually talked about some of our favorite movies and we've actually done giveaways of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and everything. So 
it's been a point of conversation. So I know the twist. I know the basics. I've seen plenty of scenes on all the other horror things that I put into my brain on a consistent basis. So I think I just assumed that I had seen it, but really in its full totality, I had never seen it. Well, it was so exciting to get to watch you experience it for the first time. And we're doing something a little different here. Because it's been a crazy week, our schedule's a little off. And normally we watch it and there's at least a day, sometimes a couple of days in between when we actually record. Mm -hmm. But tonight we literally had to watch it and turn right around and come in here and record. So it's fresh on the brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I say we get to it. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready to get into it. So, of course, now is the moment where I must warn you all that if you haven't seen this movie, like myself, up until this moment, I can't judge you. Um, But you want to see it before we talk about it. Now's the time to pause, go check the movie out, and come back because we are going to spoil everything. So, yeah, now's the time. Go check it out. Come back and listen to us. But even if you don't want to check it out and you just want to hang out and listen to us chit-chat about it, I don't blame you for that either. That's what we're here for. We always have a good time. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, as usual, let's kick it off by getting to the wiki. So Psycho is a 1960 American psychological horror thriller film produced and directed by Alfred Hitchcock and stars Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates and Janet Leigh as Marion Crane. The screenplay, written by Joseph Stefano, was based on the 1959 novel of the same name by Robert Bloch. Hitchcock bought the rights to the novel anonymously for $9,000. He then bought up as many copies of the book he could find in order to try and keep the ending a secret. Psycho was seen as a departure from Hitchcock's previous film, North by Northwest, as it was filmed on a lower budget and in black and white by the crew of his television series, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The film was initially considered controversial and received mixed reviews, but audience interest and outstanding box office returns prompted a major critical reevaluation. Hitchcock believed in this film so much he deferred his standard $250,000 salary in lieu of 60% of the movie's box office. Paramount, believing the film would flop, took the deal. Hitchcock's personal earnings from this movie exceeded $15 million. Adjusted for inflation, that would be over $130 million today. Chunk change. <laughs> I mean, I think he came out pretty well in that deal. Yeah. Always bet on yourself. <laughs> Psycho was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actress for Janet Leigh and Best Director for Hitchcock. Psycho is now considered one of Hitchcock's best films and is arguably his most famous work. It has been praised as a major work of cinematic art by international film critics and scholars due to its slick direction, tense atmosphere, impressive camera work, a memorable score, and iconic performances. Often ranked among the greatest films of all time, it set a new level of acceptability for violence, deviant behavior, and sexuality in American films, and is widely considered to be the earliest example of the slasher film genre. After Hitchcock's death in 1980, Universal Pictures tried real hard to cash in on Psycho's success and cultural significance by producing three sequels, a remake, a made-for-television spinoff, and a prequel television series set in the 2010s. I haven't seen it, so I'm not sure how that works, but it's supposed to be pretty good. 
1992, the Library of Congress deemed the film culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry. That seems to be a running thing with the last few movies we've done. I mean, these are classics for a reason. Yeah, yeah. It was so good. I'm excited. Yeah, and it's also, it's encouraging to hear so many horror films get recognized as, you know, excellence in film. Yeah, yeah. It's something, it's not something that a lot of people would associate horror with. So yeah, I think that's really cool to, to see so many really badass and significant titles up there cataloged in that. I think that's really, really cool. Well, for those that don't know what the movie is about, it's about a Phoenix secretary, Marion Crane, on the lam after stealing $40,000 from her employer in order to run away with her boyfriend, Sam Loomis, is overcome by exhaustion during a heavy rainstorm. Traveling on the back roads to avoid police, she stops for the night at the ramshackle Bates Motel and meets the polite but highly strong proprietor, Norman Bates, a young man with an interest in taxidermy and a difficult relationship with his mother. What's not to love? Taxidermy and mommy problems. <laughs> I mean, I got some stuff to say about that taxidermy. Uh, <laughs> we're going to get to all of it because we're going to break this entire movie down. But I do have to give everyone a heads up that I am a huge Hitchcock fan. And so I have many factoids. I will try and keep it to a minimum. Do I need to like give you a cap? <laughs> Maybe. If I could give you a buzzer and you just, this is this is too many. You've reached your quota. Uh, But I have a few to get out of the way just up front. Okay, let's hit it. Hit me with some Hitchcock. (laughs) Okay, so at the time Hitchcock was set to make this film, he had already kind of established himself as the master of suspense. But in 1955, a low-budget, black-and-white, independent French film was getting a lot of attention from critics. The film was called Diabolique, and was directed by legendary film noir director and one of Hitchcock's rivals, Henri-Georges Clouseau. The critics were saying that Diabolique and Clouseau had out-Hitchcocked Hitchcock. And don't tell anyone, but I kind of have to agree. But uh, Diabolique is an absolutely phenomenal film, and the cinematic scene at the end, I swear you could get a diamond from coal from how hard you're squeezing your butt cheeks together (laughs) from that tension. (laughs) It's phenomenal, and Diabolique will have its day on Dead Zone, I guarantee you. But today is not that day. Hitchcock decided that no one out-Hitchcock's Hitchcock, and maybe it's time for someone to out-Diabolique Diabolique. And so Hitchcock directed his own low-budget black-and-white project, and voila, we have Psycho. Very nice. Diabolique (laughs) 2.0. I'm telling you, it's a phenomenal film. It's, It's great. You know, I said in the wiki how Hitchcock ended up very sneakily purchasing the rights to this book. Mm -hmm. And he goes in anonymously because, you know, if he comes in as he's Hitchcock, someone's going to drive that price up. Don't you think? Mm -hmm. Just a little. (laughs) So he gets it for a steal and then says, this is too good. I don't want anyone knowing the end Mm-hmm. Because it's going to ruin my movie. So he buys up all these copies. But then when he actually starts filming, he makes everyone take a pledge of secrecy on set. Mm-hmm. And then he kept the ending out of the script all the way up until the point that it came time to shoot that scene. 
He even had one of those uh, canvas chairs where, you know, they'll print like director on the back. He had one of those made with Mrs. Bates printed on the back and he had it on set throughout shooting. So this led everyone to speculate who was going to be playing Miss Bates. Everyone truly believed that she was a live character. Yeah. And and no one realized. <laughs> he went to that much trouble to try and keep that secret. That's crazy. That's some dedication. Uh, yeah. It, and and it worked. Yeah, yeah. It, it's almost uh like maniacal a little bit. Like how I would I just wouldn't even think to go through all those hoops. <laughs> well, I guarantee you no one would ever accuse Hitchcock of being sane. So <laughs> a little maniacal is uh, completely within reason of uh, the links that he'll go to. <laughs> Uh, so, of course, for our big, more current horror fans, and by more current, I'm I'm bringing us up to 78. So this movie, as we discussed last week, has a definite tie-in with Halloween. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, of course, Carpenter was such a fan of this movie that he named the psychologist in Halloween Sam Loomis, who, of course, is named after the boyfriend of Marion Crane. And then he went so far as to hire Janet Lee's own daughter, mm-hmm. Jamie Lee Curtis, to play Laurie Strode. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. And that was just like the ultimate nod to that movie for mm-hmm. him. But then in Halloween H2O, 20 years later, everything kind of comes full circle. That movie was made in 1998 and, of course, starred Jamie Lee Curtis, revising her role as Laurie Strode, and her mother, Janet Lee plays Laurie Strode's secretary in the film. So he got to pay the ultimate homage to this classic, Psycho, by having Janet Lee's first appearance in the film to be of her driving a car similar to Marion Crane's. And when she's revealed, you actually hear that Psycho theme music in Halloween H2O. Oh, so, wow. so the whole thing just came full circle. That's so funny. I've seen Halloween H2O many times. I don't know why I got in a a kick of that one for a while uh and i'd never even put two and two together that's so funny uh how you can completely (laughs) not pay attention to background characters and stuff like that or even small hints like that like even tonight when we were watching there was sometimes where you'd kind of point out little things and there's things like that where i'm glad uh that i watch movies with you your fun facts a always make movies better (laughs) be when you point stuff out because yeah i'm one of those people that i'm just i'm fully engaged into the movie but background stuff and stuff like that completely over my head just not there but i have you to point it out and i'm like (laughs) oh that's so great and i will whether you want me to or not (laughs) well of course, back when this was made, you know, late 50s came out in 1960. But as they were filming, you know, all the credits were done at the beginning mm-hmm. of the film. So you have this long setup of all this cre- credits, but we get treated to that amazing theme music. You know, the whole score for this movie is absolutely amazing and iconic. You know, anytime anyone does a stabbing motion, they always include that just mm-hmm. because that now means stabbing. Yeah, that's synonymous with stabbing. (laughs) It is the musical version of stabbing forever (laughs) and ever. Stabbing, the musical. (laughs) But the music was so important to this film that, you know, when shooting wrapped and a rough cut had been finished, Hitchcock was convinced that it was crap. He he thought it wasn't going to do well. He was ready to cut it down 
and release it as a television episode on his show that he had. Uh, But then he handed it over to the composer, Bernard Herrmann, to score. And once he saw the completed movie with the music added, he he knew that this was going to be a hit. And, And he has said that Psycho is 30% scarier simply because of the music. Yeah, I get, I can definitely see that. I know that was one thing that I noticed when I was watching it. You mentioned it off the top, but the camera work, which was something I noticed, but that and the music, both of those really, I feel like, amplified this movie. And I agree, I don't know that it would be as suspenseful, as scary, have you on the edge of your seat as well as it does without it. Because the, the, the music really, there were some, just a couple of times where, you know, it was like increasing, increasing, increasing. And I was like, okay, we can't go anymore. I need <laughs> us to get somewhere fast. Yeah. And, and Hitchcock is great at that. I mean, that's his thing, man. He's good at using whatever tools at his disposal. And sometimes that means the music to help build up that suspense. Mm-hmm. And he uses it very effectively. Well, of course, through the credits, uh, we have our two top-billed stars, but oddly enough, we don't see them until very late in the movie. It's kind of strange for a movie. I mean, usually your title characters, they're in it to win it from, from the jump. We start out with them pretty much up front, but Anthony Perkins, who plays Norman Bates, doesn't show up until 30 minutes in. Mm-hmm. And then Vera Miles, who plays Lila Crane, doesn't show up until a full hour in. Yeah, You know, these were our two biggest names at the time. And then you have Janet Lee who we think is our main character, she actually only gets, you know, a kind of an also starring credit, you mm-hmm. know, there at the end. So uh, it's it's just, it's very odd. And it, it kind of throws the audience for a loop, especially when Marion's death comes pretty early on in the film when you think she's going to be our final girl. Yeah, I have to say that it, it actually did the same for me in watching it. I did not anticipate... Marion being gone from the movie as early as it happened and I I don't know if I had really the idea that she was our final girl I think because I I already pretty well knew the details of the movie but I definitely at least thought she was there longer Mm -hmm. so yeah whenever uh her death happened so soon I was I was a little bit shocked I was like oh okay all right What's next? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, she uh, she makes it about halfway mm-hmm. through the film. Mm-hmm. And then the whole second half of the film, you know, she's kind of the catalyst for what happens in the rest of the film. Yeah. Obviously, her death uh, raises some questions. Yeah. But, of course, before we get there, we, we got to find out how we got to that point. Uh, so we're starting out in Phoenix, Arizona, and it is Friday, December 11th. And the only reason why they added Friday, December 11th was because when he sent his second unit out to record this kind of stock footage of Phoenix, Arizona, because mm-hmm. obviously they weren't actually filming there, but they needed kind of like skyline scenes yeah, yeah, yeah. to add in. Uh, it was around Christmas time. And so you can see, if you look really close, you can see Christmas decorations. Up. Oh, really? Yeah. And Hitchcock was afraid people were going to notice that and wonder why we don't mention that it's Christmas. Because at no time do you ever get the feel that this is around Christmas No, no, time. no, not at all. In fact, you kind of get the impressions it's a little warm out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So he threw that in there just so people wouldn't be like, hey, it's Christmas. 
Well, good news. I didn't notice the date or the Christmas decorations. <laughs> so in my head. Again, those little details. Nope. Just... Right. Yep. Right past me. Uh-huh. I was just like, they are somewhere and sometime and killing is happening. Well, we are starting out with a very sultry scene. The spicy talk is just right off the bat. My goodness. And we have Miss Janet Lee in her undergarments. Her little pointy bra. The bullet bra. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, doing it the Madonna way. Yeah, why not? <laughs> and uh, she is speaking with Sam Loomis, her her boyfriend, and they are involved in... It's kind of strange because she feels like it's this secret long-distance affair. Mm-hmm. He's not married. He's actually divorced. Uh, but he lives out of town and only comes in every once in a while for business. So they're always meeting at hotels and he's never there for very long. So they don't really get to go out and have proper dates and stuff. So she's frustrated that they're not having this relationship out in the open and she wants more. She even wants to get married. And he said, look, I have all these bills. I have alimony. I'm paying off my father's debt from this business that I'm struggling with. I I can barely take care of myself. It's just not in the cards for us. Yeah. And he lives in like the back room of his job, basically. Yeah. He he lives in like the storeroom of his hardware shop. Yeah. And that's what he kept saying. He was like, there's no room for the two of us. (laughs) It's just very tiny. (laughs) It's me and a broom in there, girlfriend. There's no room. (laughs) You know, they have yet to embrace the tiny home living. Yeah. Yeah. Little did they know they were hip then. (laughs) Well, Marion goes back to work and uh, Sam heads back to where he lives in California there. And we get our cameo of Sir Alfred Hitchcock himself. Mm -hmm. He is standing right outside wherever it is that Marion works, standing there on the curb. He has said that he wanted to get his cameo out of the way early in the film because, again, at this time he was a very established and accomplished director People knew his shtick about always having a cameo in his film, so that kind of became the fun thing. You try and figure out where he is. And he really wanted people to focus on the story, so he wanted to get his cameo out of the way so they'd stop looking for him. He just comes on the beginning credits and he's like, hey, it's me. Hello. (laughs) Pay attention, please. This is important. (laughs) Well, she is solicited by some old white man flashing his cash around trying to impress her. Yeah, douche McGee. Oh my god, it doesn't work. No, he's so skeevy. Is is that supposed to be charming? Like, did that ever work? I mean, she seems like she's not falling for it. The The other little lady in the office just is completely smitten. Oh, he was flirting with you. Gross, yeah. he's nasty. Yeah, and she was like, oh, I guess he saw my wedding ring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know, but I, I love uh, Marion's way of handling it, because it, cause immediately, even in my notes, like I'm like, this guy's disgusting, just being a douche, being so skeevy, and, and you, the way she handles it is like, just brushes that shit off. I mean, she's just... She looks so bored by him. Yeah, and it's amazing. I, I, I was watching that, and... I felt like that was a really good way to establish her personality of this, like... I don't have time for your bullshit. Exactly. Like, she's there to get stuff done and and do what she needs to do and get out. And her personality, like you said, yeah, is just take no shit, you know? And really, like, independent and... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Independent and sassy. Independent and sassy, for sure. (laughs) So, he ends up dropping 40000 in cash 
to buy his daughter some property. I, I wasn't sure. She's 18. She's getting married. He's buying her something. I, I wasn't sure what he's doing. Yeah. I, I just couldn't get past how gross he was. I know. It made me laugh because he says he's like showing Marion a picture of his daughter and he's like, she's 18 years old. She's never like had a day sad in all 18 years or something like that. And it just made me laugh because I was like, if you're her dad, I can guarantee she had some <laughs> bad days. Every day has been a bad day. <laughs> well, Skeevy Guy and Marion's boss excuse themselves into the boss's office because they have air conditioning in there. Of course. <laughs> I was like, why? You can't get it for your entire office, asshole? Uh, anyway, they're going to have some drinks to uh, toast this big deal that he's just brokered. And Marion leaves to go drop the money off at the bank and then tells her boss she's going to go home and sleep off a headache. Uh, but it looks like maybe Marion forgot to go to the bank. It and happens. somehow has just gone straight home and appears to be packing. <laughs> but notice something interesting here. And, well, no. <laughs> I already know you didn't notice it. Because, <laughs> yes, again, here's one of these little details. So... And of course, our opening scene, our very scandalous, sultry scene, mm-hmm. uh, Marion is in her undergarments and she is in her bra. Oh, and it's and it's all white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now that she's back home, she's wearing all black. It's all black. That is done purposely. Cong- uh, kudos to you for noticing. Thanks. I am so proud of you. Thanks. Thanks. I watch movies with you. I I know. You're learning. Sometimes I got to wake up. You're learning, young Padawan. It doesn't happen often. I'm also very excited because you know what I'm referencing now when I say young Padawan. <laughs> because before me, she had never seen Star Wars. That's right, folks. Yeah. But she has now. Anywho, so yeah, that was done purposely because in our opening scene, Hitchcock wanted to present her more as innocent mm-hmm. and angelic. And now she's done this very bad thing. She has stolen this money. Mm-hmm. And so now she is the bad girl. She's gone to the so dark now, side. Yes. Yeah, so now we are in black. Spicy. Extra spicy. So she keeps looking over at that money as she is packing. She's making sure it didn't walk away. Uh, it's making her nervous. Uh, and you keep thinking, oh, she's going to change her mind. She's going to go to the bank. What's happening? Well, on her way out of town... You realize, (laughs) yep, we're taking off with that money. She is stopped at a stoplight and sees her boss and the dude she just stole $40,000 from walk across the crosswalk. Yeah. And her boss sees her and kind of smiles and nods. But then he takes a minute like, wait a minute, you were supposed to be going home. Something's a little stinky here. Something is happening. But he continues walking surely there's a perfectly good explanation yeah i'm still holding out hope for i think she is taking it to another branch (laughs) there's another drop box at the bank closest and uh she just got bad vibes there yeah yeah it happens you don't want to leave your money (laughs) in the negative space bank so apparently she's gonna look for a branch in california But on the way, she pulls over for the night to sleep because she's been driving all night. uh, And a cop pulls over to check out why she's parked on the side of the road. And she starts acting really suspicious. Yeah. I mean, you know, she's she's saying all the right things. She's giving proper explanations as to why she's there. But it's the way she's saying it Mm -hmm. that just makes her seem 
way too sketchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he's like, uh, I'm going to go ahead and run your license. I'm not sure what he does because he gets her license. Mm-hmm. He walks up for some reason, compares it to the license <laughs> on her vehicle, mm-hmm. which shouldn't have anything to do with the other. And then he just walks back and hands her <laughs> license back and she drives away. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what that accomplished, <laughs> but apparently everything was fine because at first I was like, is she... She's allowed to do that. He didn't say. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought to go or I think I even asked you out loud. I was like, "Is she running away? Like, <laughs> is this a very slow getaway?" <laughs> One thing I didn't think was funny about that scene was, you know, he uh, knocks on her window, wakes her up, and he, she gives him all these excuses, and then he does ask for her license, and she, again, acting so suspicious, she like fully turns her body away from him, and then like guards her purse and pulls because she has the money in there uh-huh, she like pulls uh-huh. the envelopes out and everything and it was just funny in my head because i'm like they have this scene where it's looking at her and looking at the cop looking at her through the driver's window and i was like there's no way he didn't fucking see that girlfriend well he would never allow her to do that exactly you turn your back to a police officer and secretly get something out of a yeah. bag yeah are you kidding no yeah yeah, so I just thought that was funny because I was like, this is very unrealistic, Mr. Guy. <laughs> so Marion has just taken off and the cop starts to follow her and she's freaking out and and just keeps thinking about that money. And the girl's not doing well. She keeps hearing voices. She, yeah, she's stressed. She is. She's not doing well with what she's done. Uh, but finally, the cop exits the highway. He just happened to be going in that direction. Uh, and Marion figures it's time to ditch the car. Mm-hmm. So she's now in L.A. She's made it to California and she pulls into a used car lot. And while she's waiting on the salesman to come and help her, she picks up a paper to see if there's uh, any news of her wrongdoing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but then unbeknownst to her, somehow the same damn cop finds yeah. her again and sees her at this car lot. So he does a little Yui in the middle of the road and pulls to the curb and just stands there and watches her. Yeah, like just blatantly stands there and watches her too. Like not even trying to hide. I think that was the one thing that I thought was, I mean, the guy was already acting creepy anyways, but I was kind of justifying it talking about at the car scene because I was like, she's also acting suspicious. So maybe he's just feeding off her energy. But now he's followed her over state lines and is just... Well, she was already in California. Oh, was she? Yeah, she okay. was on the highway leading into town. Okay, okay. But yeah, it's still... I mean, he exited before she mm-hmm. even exited off the highway. So mm-hmm. the fact that he just happened to drive past her again is a little convenient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, also... I mean, it's purposeful. It's It's to start making the audience understand how paranoid she is yeah you know just seeing that he's there watching you start to get paranoid as well you're like Mm -hmm. oh because you know you're already on marion's side she's done this terrible thing but you're who we're following Mm -hmm. so now we're invested and we want you to get away so Mm -hmm. yeah the audience starts to be worried too and that's really how it makes you feel it's like why is this cop just watching her i don't understand Mm -hmm. what his deal is Mm -hmm. Well, the dealer accepts her trade. She's trading her car in plus 700 bucks, which that's a lot of money back then. I, I think it would be like about $6,000 today or something. Yeah. So, yeah. And she offers to pay that in cash. 
and doesn't attempt to haggle over the price or anything. Mm-hmm. So the dealer is getting a little suspicious as well. Yeah. Uh, but Marion's like, hey, I've got the money. Do you want it or not? Yeah. So what? I'm in a hurry. Let's just, let's do the thing. Mm-hmm. And he's like, all right. So as he makes the deal, the cop now pulls into the lot. Yeah. Just in time to witness her trying to drive off without the belongings she left in her old car. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be important. Yeah. Your luggage, yeah. everything you own <laughs> yeah. at this point. Uh, so she's off and driving again and starts to hear more of these voices. And it, I'm I'm not sure if... What we are hearing is her idea of what she believes is happening. You know, she's hearing this conversation between the officer and the car salesman. And and she hears the salesman telling the officer how he found it was suspicious and, and stuff. And he's like, well, I need to see that paperwork. And so I don't know if this is just her idea of what she believes is happening or if this is actually supposed to represent what happened after she left. Mm -hmm. But either way, it adds to that paranoia. It's like, oh, shit, now this cop is really on to her and has all of her information and, you know, is is probably going to be tracking her. So, again, it just adds to that panic that Marion is is having, that, that, that paranoia. Yeah, yeah. Well, now night has come and it's starting to rain and Marion cannot see shit. No, it's so scary. It's, it is so scary. It's like, do windshield wipers not work? And why... Is the rain so blinding? She mm-hmm. keeps blinking her eyes like people are shining flashlights in her face. But luckily up ahead in the distance, she sees a sign for the Bates Motel. And she's in luck because there's a vacancy. Just a beacon of hope. <laughs> so Marion pulls in, but she's having a hard time finding the proprietor. So she sees a big old house around back. Not scary at all. No, nope. Perfectly normal. Not haunted looking. <laughs> nope. This is perfectly fine. (laughs) And she sees a woman walk past the window. So she honks the horn and lo and behold, a young man comes running down out of the house and it is Norman Bates. Here he is. And he's just so goofy. He's just, he's just a goober. He's just, just this young, good looking kid, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, Well, he explains that uh, all 12 rooms are available Mm -hmm. since no one really stops there anymore. Uh, ever since the main highway has moved. But she goes ahead and gets a room and signs in under a fake name and says she's from L.A. He takes her to the room and invites her to dinner. What an odd... That just seemed very weird. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, it's kind of like... It it was weird because, like, first she says, I'm hungry, and... I had a weird feeling because he's like, oh, basically your option's a diner 10 miles up the road. Mm-hmm. And it's like pouring rain. Yeah. And so at first I was like, okay, well, she obviously isn't going to make that drive because it's pouring rain. Like, couldn't you offer her something, you know, or whatever? Like, maybe the motel has a convenient something, you know, for <laughs> customers. And so I, I was like a little bit peeved at that. But then when he offered her dinner, I was like, ew, no, I don't want that either. <laughs> we took it to two extremes not enough and then too much i don't want your meal of sandwiches and milk oh yeah awful i wrote in my notes i was like nothing sounds better to me than a fun afternoon with norman and sandwiches and milk (laughs) and his old wrinkly mama uh well he definitely has a very boyish charm to him almost 
too boyish. So after Norman leaves to prepare those lovely sandwiches and milk, Marion looks for a place to hide the money she stole. But she overhears Norman and his mother arguing about the fact he has invited her to dinner, and she don't like it one bit. Yeah, it's just very loud, first off. Like, that was the thing that I first noticed, because he opens the window, the um, motel window, because when they first walk in, he says it's... Stuffy and Stuffy, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he opens the window, and I think that was to obviously kind of give you a reason to believe that that sound would travel, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. But that was something that I kind of found silly, because I was like... Obviously, we wouldn't be able to hear that down there from that big-ass house, hear them yelling like that and fighting. But also, like, how awkward would that be? I wouldn't even come out of my motel room. Oh, yeah. Like, I would just lock up and be like, no, I'm fine. I don't need any sandwiches and (laughs) milk. No sandwich, no milk. Thank you. Bye-bye. I actually just got some water out of the sink, and I'm (laughs) stuffed. I'm drinking toilet water. I'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and you also have to consider it could be a possibility that Norman set that up. He opens that window knowing he's going to do this to, quote unquote, prove Mm -hmm. there is actually a mother. Yeah. And so all he has to do instead of going all the way back to the house is just go around the corner Mm -hmm. and have this argument very loudly. Very true. Yeah. Uh, Since, oh, spoiler, there is no mom. (laughs) Ruh-roh. (laughs) Well, Marion sees Norman returning and meets him outside, explaining that she indeed overheard the argument. He tries to apologize, and she invites him into her room, but he hesitates and suggests they would be more comfortable in the office. So they go into what he keeps referring to as the parlor, Mm -hmm. which is behind the office where they check people in. And there are a lot of stuffed birds in here. Yeah. Like a lot. Well, Norman ends up sharing with Marion that his hobby is to stuff birds. Taxidermy. Yeah. And I would just like to put this out there right now. Boys, please do not try to impress a woman by telling her you stuff animals. It will never not be creepy. Unless that's her hobby, too. Uh, yes. If you, like, meet over, like, your hobby of taxidermy art or oddity shops or something like that, that's pretty cool. Uh, and in that case, I would encourage you to stuff the biggest bird you can find <laughs> and offer it to the lady as, Of your choosing. Yeah, yeah. as kind of a, a gift an offering for a date and see what occurs. And then let me know, because now I'm invested. (laughs) All right, but other than that very rare situation, (laughs) please do not tell ladies that you stuff animals. (laughs) Never not creepy. Never not creepy. (laughs) Well, Norman doesn't really have friends uh, because he's weird. (laughs) And also... Because a boy's best friend is his mother. Mama. Mama BFF. (laughs) I mean, right there, if I were Marion, I would be like, I am exhausted and I am going to my room. Yeah, I would probably turn around when I, well, okay, first off, I mentioned how I wouldn't have even left the room. So let's establish that as my foundation. (laughs) But if I have to leave my room and I walk into the office, 
the moment I see the stuffed birds, I'm leaving. Only because I don't want to eat sandwiches and milk in a room of stuffed birds. <laughs> this is three weird things happening. And then you add the fourth weird thing, Norman Bates. And I'm like, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> but think of the story you have to tell your friends. I don't even think I would be able to process my thoughts enough to be able to tell the story. I would just be, I would be scarred. Well, for some reason, Marion sticks around and they start having an an oddly personable conversation for for two people that have just met. And, And he starts explaining how he feels trapped because he was kind of raised in this environment where he just kind of always helped take care of the hotel and now he has to take care of his mother because she's an invalid and she can't take care of herself and he doesn't feel that he can leave because who would take care of her and Marion suggests that he put her into an institution but Norman says that she's harmless and gets very offended at the suggestion so Marion apologizes and said she only meant well but he assures her that she's fine and that she just gets a little mad sometimes we all go a little mad sometimes (laughs) we get our classic line uh but somehow this conversation has convinced marion she needs to go back home and try and get herself out of her own trap she's put herself in meaning she's gonna drive back home to arizona and confess what she's done and give the money back and try and pay it back So he offers to bring her breakfast in the morning, and she excuses herself to her room. And as she is saying her goodnights, he asks her name again, and she slips that it's Crane. So, of course, when Norman double-checks the registry, he sees that she used a fake name. Yeah, whenever she uh, gave the name Crane, I think I even said out loud, I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Yep, you did. (laughs) (laughs) The jig is up. Yeah, I, I... I do want to say real quick, just about the kind of sandwich eating scene. Uh, One thing that I do really enjoy about the uh, sort of conversational scenes with Norman Bates and whoever he's talking to, there's this scene with Marion, and then we have another scene later on with the detective and another scene later on with a few other people. One thing I think that Anthony Perkins does really well for this role is he does an amazing job at um switching emotions with his face uh you know like you talked about their kind of friendly conversation and their chit-chatting just kind of you know conversating about i mean he's he's sharing quite a bit with marion but she's she's still listening and talking to him and kind of being a friend and everything but yeah like you said the moment she brings up his mom he shifts and he's able to switch that facial expression on a dime and he does that so well and even bringing up the registration scene where he's going through the book to look through and see her name as what see what she signed in as he kind of makes a face then too and I just really enjoyed how he's able to do those shifts where he can be kind of normal and conversational and then get either really mad or even kind of have that kind of psychotic looking smile on his face or in his eyes or something like that he just does that really well in this movie yeah, absolutely. There, There's even a scene later on, it's going to be the scene where he is disposing of Marion's vehicle, where I notice the exact thing that you're talking about. Uh, and so we'll address that when we get there. But how exciting that that is something that we both kind of picked up on is these little nuances he has mm-hmm. in these facial expressions that help convey the simplest of emotions. Yeah. That, that how he can turn those, you know, go from 
from kind of terrified to relief and excitement or happiness to fear. And Mm -hmm. yeah, he he did a, a very good job. Well, Norman has decided that this is a bad girl and he has himself a little peep show set up in the parlor off the office and watches Marion undress. And this scene is so well done just with the, you know, the POV shot where we can see through the peephole and you feel like the voyeur, you know, Mm -hmm. as the audience member. Uh, Hitchcock is really able to bring you in and, and see what that feels like. And then to turn around and you get this amazing close up shot of Perkins eye Mm -hmm. as he's looking through the peephole. And there's something about that switch to being, being the voyeur to watching very intimately the person who is doing the spying, Mm -hmm. you know, you had this intimate shot of Marion. Yeah. Like in a very vulnerable state, getting undressed and everything. Absolutely. You know, as, as we are looking for from his point of view, we see Marion getting undressed and yes, she is very vulnerable and it's a very intimate shot. And then we switch and we are so close on his eye and experiencing what he is seeing that, you know, it is a very intimate shot with the person who is seeing what you were just seeing. It's just a, an interesting way that he ties those two very different viewpoints together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Norman then goes back up to the house while Marion is trying to figure out how much money she'll have to pay back out of the $40,000 she stole. But then she, I guess, changes her mind again. I'm not sure. Or... Or I guess once she's done tallying it up, she no longer needs that information. So I guess she's just trying to get rid of that evidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she tears that piece of paper up, throws it in the toilet, and flushes it down. And that is actually going to come back into play later on in the story. And I'm telling you that because, believe it or not, this was a very controversial scene for the time. So screenwriter Joseph Stefano was adamant about seeing a toilet on screen to help convey realism. Up to this point, a toilet had never been shown in any American film. It was considered too vulgar because that was just business you didn't talk about. (laughs) Everybody did it, but we just all denied it publicly. That's so bizarre. And so he needed this to feel like this is something that could really happen. This was not Hollywood glitz and glamour. He wanted this to feel like a real story, and Mm -hmm. he wanted that realism. And for some reason, it became really important to him that we see a toilet on screen. And Hitchcock tells him, the only way you're going to get it in is if you can somehow make a toilet integral to the story you're telling, Mm -hmm. that it has to be in there. Yeah. So Stefano wrote the scene where Marion is adding up that money and then flushes the paper down the toilet... And because it's going to come into play later on, that means that's a plot point and that toilet has to be in there. So that toilet flushing was integral to the scene and therefore irremovable. So it got past the censors and it became the first American movie ever to not only show a toilet, but a toilet flushing on screen. That's so, I mean, I guess cool, but also it's just so, uh, I think, bizarre 
now and and nowadays to me it's bizarre that that was such a huge scandal oh yeah because today it completely seems like a non-issue yeah. you don't even think twice if you see a toilet mm-hmm. it's yeah. just like oh yeah that's a bathroom yeah it's not like you sit there and envision someone taking a shit every yeah. time you see a toilet. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's been on that. <laughs> I sense booty germs. Well, anyway, it's it's just so odd that we have this really controversial scene simply because of a toilet that leads right into one of the best death scenes ever filmed. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's so great every minute of it so of course marion decides it's time to take a shower before bed and mother comes in to put an exclamation point on her disapproval of the fact that she's there (laughs) and it really is just an amazing scene everything about it almost seems poetic like when her blood is going down the drain, and of course everybody's heard at this point that since it's black and white, Hitchcock used uh, chocolate syrup. It was actually a brand called Bosco chocolate syrup. But when we see that blood going down the drain, just as the life is draining out of her, and then she grabs the shower curtain and pulls it down ring by ring as she falls out of the tub. Mm-hmm. And then we have this amazing shot that pans out from her eye that Janet Lee holds for 25 seconds without moving mm-hmm. or blinking. It's incredible. Yeah, that's interesting because I did find myself sitting there staring, trying to figure out if it was a real person. Yeah. When I first saw that movie, I was like, this is a still shot. Mm-hmm. But then you start to see the water come oh, down yeah, her yeah. face. Yeah, yeah, it's very well done. And along with that scene, when she falls out of that shower mm-hmm. onto her face, yes, it looks like it fucking hurts. <laughs> it does. It does. The whole thing looks very realistic. Mm-hmm. And it was shocking at the time. So this scene took a week to shoot and features 77 different camera angles and includes 50 cuts. Can you imagine? I mean, through the whole time, she had to do all of this over and mm-hmm. over again. At least 77 times. Yeah. I'm sure it was more than that. But it's just incredible. One of the things that I found amazing was that for the shot that looks up into the shower head, uh-huh. Hitchcock had a six foot diameter shower head made up and blocked the central jets so the water sprayed in a cone past the camera lens. Because remember, they didn't have little teeny tiny cameras like they do today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had these huge, giant cameras that were like on wheels and yeah. not easy to maneuver around. So he had to build a giant shower head. <laughs> That's amazing. That would make it look like he's shooting up into a tiny shower head. That's so crazy. Well, the other thing to come out of this was, although Janet Lee was not bothered by the filming of the shower scene, once she saw it on film, when she saw the movie, mm-hmm. it profoundly impacted her. She said it was terrifying, and it would later be said that until the end of her life, she only ever took baths. Wow, that's bizarre. You would think somebody that was there during it would be able to separate those differences, you know, the the real from the fiction yeah well i mean it's only a testament to how well that scene is put together mm-hmm. it, it's 
it's really frightening. Yeah. And, you know, most people coming out of that theater probably would swear that they actually saw that woman get stabbed. Mm -hmm. And of course you never see it. You, you just kind of see a mother making the slashing motions. Mm -hmm. And then of course you see her horrified screams Mm -hmm. and you see a little bit of blood spatter, but of course you, you never actually see her get stabbed, but I guarantee you, they all thought that they saw that woman get stabbed because mm-hmm. that's how effective that scene was. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Well, of course, again, like we said earlier, 45 minutes into the film and uh, our final girl is dead. Marion is uh, is no more. She cannot, <laughs> whatever her final decision was, whether she was actually going back to confess or if she was going to go on and, and run away with her lover, either plan is, is going to work out at this point. Yeah. Uh, but you hear Norman cry out from the house. He says, oh, God, mother, the blood, the blood. And the cool thing about that, I don't know if you could tell, but Hitchcock had them take the bass out of his voice in the audio. Uh, so he would sound more childlike when he screamed that. He wanted him to sound more like a teenager. Oh, really? I, yeah, be- I don't even think I noticed. Yeah, because Norman is supposed to be, because he's so connected to his mom, he's kept this childlike persona. Mm-hmm. And so at, at that moment, him reacting to finding out that mother killed Marion, mm-hmm. uh, he, he's supposed to be reverting more into like a, a childlike state. Yeah. So Norman runs down and discover Marion's body. Uh, and it looks like he's got some cleaning up to do, but it's right in the shower. So clean up, easy peasy. Yeah. And I kind of think that was the whole point of this scene, kind of showing how easy it is for a woman to be murdered and disposed of. Because this scene, although it's not shot in real time, it, it, it's obvious there's cuts. And of course, we don't see you know, everything he has to do to clean up. But it's a very long scene. It, it ta- I, f- I feel like it takes like three to four minutes mm-hmm. for this entire scene to play out of him cleaning everything up and gathering her things up and putting her body in the car and putting her belongings in the car and and cleaning up the bathroom and getting the mop out. And it kind of drags on, but yet in the grand scheme of things, three or four minutes, that's not very long. Mm-hmm. And so psychologically you think, is that all it takes? Yeah. That easily, I could disappear without a trace. Mm -hmm. And that just adds to the terror. Yeah, absolutely. I do like the fact that, I mean, that scene does seem long. I mean, I think just because it feels so tedious. But I do like the fact that we are able to go on that journey with him to clean that up. Because we see into this character that really has no remorse uh, at all during the cleaning session. And then not only that, I mean, uh, you find a lot of times with movies nowadays when there's some sort of menial task like that, they usually do some sort of like side sweep or montage scene or something like that where, you know, it's just like a bunch of lively music and you kind of see the beginning scene and then the ending scene and the final product or whatever. But taking the time to show us the tasks that would go into basically covering up this whole crime, I think is an interesting take because you don't get that a lot Mm -hmm. in, you know, even crime shows like, you know, Law and Order and stuff like that. You really don't get that whole step by step process of it all. And I I think that's for a reason. I don't think that 
a lot of people would want to watch that every single episode. You know what I mean? I think that would get a little bit monotonous, but also maybe just a little bit too much, you know, to see that hour after hour, you know, mm-hmm. if you're watching it on a television show. So getting to do that in a small capacity like that three or four minute span in this movie, I think is interesting. So we don't get that often nowadays in, in movies or TV shows. Yeah. And it, and it also just kind of speaks to the matter of fact way that he goes about it. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, oh no, mother's done it again. I've, I've got to kick into action and, mm-hmm. and do what I've always done, which is clean up after her. Mm-hmm. And it, I, it's got to get done or I'll be punished again by her. Yeah. And uh, so he just does what he has to do. Yeah. Like, it feels like he's just doing like a, a motel, like, made task. Like, he's just cleaning up a regular mess. It doesn't feel any bigger to him than cleaning up, you know, a party that somebody had in that motel room the night before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's what he does is take care of the grounds and take care of the motel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, now Norman has uh, a body and uh, its belongings to get rid of. So he grabs everything and puts it in the trunk of her car, which is the size of our living room. Did you see that trunk? Yeah, it was really big. At first I was like, okay, that's pretty big, but I'm sure it's just going to fit like just the body. But then like everything went in there and I was like, this is getting, this is a Mary Poppins trunk. <laughs> like there's something going on here. Well, they showed it like before he starts filling up. And I'm like, my God, the trunk space is unbelievable. It's a reason why they called those cars back then tanks. They were so big because <laughs> half of it was a trunk. Well, those belongings also included the rest of that $40,000 she stole. Norman has no idea that she even has it. But now he throws that in the trunk as well. He drives it over to a swamp that's on the property and watches it sink to the bottom. But here's one of those moments like you what you were talking about earlier. There's a moment where it almost looks like the swamp isn't going to be deep enough mm-hmm. and the car kind of stops sinking. And Norman Bates has this habit of eating candy corn. Uh, You actually see it when the private eye pulls up. He's sitting on the porch and he's just kind of chomping on candy corn. Mm -hmm. But there's also times throughout the movie you'll see he's kind of chewing on something. Yeah. And that's what that's supposed to be. It's kind of like his nervous tick. It it reminds me of Robert Shaw in Jaws when he's playing Quint and he's always eating those tiny little crackers. (laughs) Yeah. And putting them in his pocket. Uh, That's kind of what Norman Bates does. He has that nervous tick. So when it stops... You see him and he's kind of immediately that expression changes, but Mm -hmm. it's not a huge change. And it's almost just in his eyes. And he puts his, you know, fingers up to his mouth and he's doing that nervous habit, chewing on his little candy corn. And he has that little panic look, but then it starts to sink again and he goes under and then just almost magically that panic melts off his face and it just goes in like into this little kid's smile. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, I noticed that in that scene as well. Um, Just the shift from, like you said, that kind of anxiety to almost like serenity, but also like, yeah, like you said, that kind of happiness that everything went his way. Uh, And I was interested up until we do finally see that it's candy corn that he was eating with the detective. Uh, I noticed that he was, I think it was in the beginning scene with Marion, if I remember correctly, he was snacking on something then too. And then the scene with the car, he's snacking as well. And I remember sitting there thinking, I was like, 
is he biting his nails? Why is he not spitting it out? Like, I just kept seeing him putting things into his mouth, but not getting them out. So I was like, is this character supposed to be eating his nails? I don't understand what's happening here. So well, when I saw the candy corn bag, I was happy to see it wasn't nails. Well, oddly enough, that was actually something that Hitchcock allowed Anthony Perkins to do, and that was to develop that character on his own, including any little strange ticks or anything he wanted to add. And that's what Perkins chose, is that he had this little nervous tick of always kind of chewing on candy corn because it was, you know, it was something that uh, he could keep on set. It's not going to get melty, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a, it's a sweet, it's candy, and it's something a little kid would want, you yeah. know, all the time is just kind of uh, nervously chew on this candy. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I'm assuming is the next day, Sam is writing a letter to Marion, uh, telling her that he's changed his mind and there's now room in his tiny storage room <laughs> for her. And uh, I guess uh, he's kind of saying, come up and, and let's get hitched and let's do the thing. Uh, but there's also a woman in his hardware store looking for bug killer that is painless. Because all death should be painless. I thought this was... <laughs> Hitchcock is really great about adding these silly little uh, moments from side characters, you know, that don't really add anything to the story. It's just a bit of comedy that he puts in there. Mm-hmm. And and I think that moment kind of serves two purposes. Number one, we needed a little comic relief after this horrifying death that we've just witnessed yeah and and number two you know the, the the little line she says about all death should be painless you know it's it's kind of like he's rubbing it in our faces that we just witnessed this horrific way to die yeah and uh it's it's a nice little moment mm-hmm. well marion's sister lila has shown up at the hardware store because marion is missing and so is that forty thousand dollars but a private eye also shows up looking for Marion and the money as well. Uh, so the private eye makes his way over to the Bates Motel, and today is linen day because Norman hates the smell of dampness. Yeah, it's a, it's a stinky smell. And it's creepy. Yeah. Well, Norman claims Marion hasn't been in, uh, but the dick ain't buying it. He even has a sample of her handwriting, and through much finagling and against Norman's wishes... <laughs> He eventually gets to see the registry book and figures out that she is the one who signed in under an alias. So Norman now claims magically he does remember Mm -hmm. that she was there. Uh, But of course, she just stayed the night and promptly left the next morning. Well, because of all of Norman's hemming and hawing around, the private eye doesn't think his story is gelling. Anyway, he steps outside and can see Norman's mother in the window, which is odd because Norman said he was there alone. So Arborgast, our PI, asks if he could speak with his mother, but Norman says it's out of the question. Arborgast says he'll just have to come back with a warrant. I don't know how a PI goes about doing that, but if it keeps the story moving, I'm willing to accept it. <laughs> so he leaves and Norman smiles real creepy-like. It's one of those little smiles that he does that's halfway childlike, halfway too fucking creepy. Yeah, it's very unsettling. It's a little evil. Yeah. While Arbogast takes himself to a payphone and calls Lila, he tells her Marion was indeed up here in L.A., but there's something fishy going on, and he wants to go back to the Bates Motel and try and talk with the mother. 
this poses a slight problem that he is unaware of at this point. Uh, but he says he'll call her back in about an hour. So Arbogast goes back to the hotel and just lets himself into the parlor behind the office. Uh, he sees the safe has been open and it appears to be empty. So he makes his way up to the house and then just lets himself the fuck in the house too. What is it with people in horror movies just walking the hell into people's homes? I just don't care. A little respect for people's private property <laughs> would result in much less death, I feel. Yeah, maybe that's why there's so much killing. People are just angry that everybody's in their homes. I mean... They're like Sims who forget to like lock their doors. <laughs> yes, oh, the worst. They're like angry. They're like... It's like, I have to be at work in four hours, and I still have to level up my cooking. Get out. Why are you using my shower? Well, Arbogast makes his way upstairs, but Mama ain't in no mood for talking. And she stabs that son of a bitch, and he goes flying down the stairs. Mm -hmm. Dead man. Dead man flying. (laughs) Well, back at Sam's tiny hardware store, he and Lila are getting worried because it's been well over an hour, and the detective hasn't called back. So Sam goes up to the hotel looking for him to no avail, Uh, He returns to Tiny Hardware Store and says that no one was there, not even Norman. So now Sam and Lila go to the local sheriff. They convince him to call the motel, and he talks to Norman. Norman says the detective was there, but that he left. But, of course, Sam and Lila say that can't be right because he was supposed to be going back to talk with the mother. That's when the sheriff's wife says, well, that's impossible, Because Norman's mother is dead. Dun, 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 dead. (laughs) (laughs) So it turns out she poisoned herself and her lover several years ago, and Norman found them dead in bed together. So after this scene, we now see Norman go back into the house, and he is trying to convince his mother, for some reason, to go down into the fruit cellar. But who is this? Because we were just told... That Norman's mother's dead, so... Somebody here is lying. Who is he talking to? So she's arguing with him, but he insists, and he actually ends up picking her up and carrying her downstairs. So who is this woman? So Sam and Lila meet the sheriff and his wife at church. I don't know how that happened and how... I don't know what's going on. (laughs) We were somewhere else before now. We're at church. Uh, The sheriff said that he went by the hotel And everything seems on the up and up, and Norman is there alone. There was no mother. Of course, we know she's in the fucking fruit cellar. He should have checked the fruit cellar. Why would you not look in the fruit cellar? Everybody knows you store your mom in the fruit cellar. (laughs) (laughs) No one puts my mama in the fruit cellar. Well, that's very true. We know your mama does not be fruity (laughs) in no fruit cellar. (laughs) She does like fruit, though. She also likes anything sweet. This is true. She's your mama for sure. (laughs) She would probably take a chocolate croissant over an apple. I'll put her in the chocolate croissant cellar then. (laughs) Every house has one of those, right? I have both a fruit cellar (laughs) and a chocolate croissant cellar. and many cellars. Well, Sam and Lila decide to go to the hotel themselves and register as a couple so they can search the place. So Norman comes down and goes to show them a room... But Sam insists that he sign the register so he can get a receipt for his boss. 
So Lila goes ahead to room 10, but checks room 1 is unlocked so they can search it later. So now that Lila and Sam are alone together in room 10, Lila starts telling Sam about how she thinks that Norman has done something to Marion and stolen that $40,000 so he can get out from under this failing motel business. So they decide to go ahead and go snoop around in room one. While they're in there, they find a little teeny tiny piece of that paper that Marion was writing on that didn't get flushed down the toilet. So see? See? The toilet had to stay. Plot point. History is made. Toilet point. (laughs) Well, Lila thinks that this proves that Norman knew about the money, but Sam is not convinced. And he wants to go up to the house and talk to the mother. So he leaves to do that, but Norman cuts him off. And Sam makes up some excuse that his wife is sleeping and thought that him and Norman could just chat because he's bored. So, you know, you talk to the hotel people. Yeah, why not? So this leaves Lila and she realizes she's the one who's got to go up and talk to the mother. So she gets in the house again, just freaking walks in (laughs) and finds Mrs. Bates' room. Uh, she startles herself in the mirror because for some reason there's like 80 mirrors in this room. This room's like the most extravagant bedroom I've ever seen in my life. It's cray cray. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's like statues of like baby angels all over the place and a fireplace in the bedroom. That's very fancy. It's just a very fancy bedroom. <laughs> it's, it's very elaborate. Many mirrors, many cellars, many everything in this house. Well, eventually... Lila notices an indention in the bed and can tell someone has been sleeping there. So this leads her to believe that the mother has to be there somewhere. So meanwhile, Sam is talking to Norman, asking a lot of questions about his mother and the $40,000. And Norman is getting real nervous. And all of a sudden he realizes they're not who they say they are. Yeah, basically at this point, all subtly has gone out the window. He's like yelling at his face like, what would you do with (laughs) $40,000? And of course, Norman has no idea about this damn $40,000. So he's like, oh, I don't know. Are you giving me (laughs) $40,000? Did I win some? (laughs) Well, it's whatever is happening. It's all too much for Norman. And he knocks Sam the fuck out. And he goes running up to the house. Lila sees him coming and hides in the basement and makes her way to the fruit cellar. She knows. She finally found Miss Bates. She knows where you keep your mom now. (laughs) She's well educated on mom storage. (laughs) But it turns out these are just her mummified remains. Uh, Of course, we have this classic scene where Lila walks into the fruit cellar and you see uh, what appears to be an old woman sitting in a rocking chair. Her back is to you. And she's like, Mrs. Bates, Mrs. Bates, and walks over, puts her hand on the shoulder, turns her around and, ah, mommy. See, I don't even think I would approach it. Like if I walked down in the cellar. And an old lady is sitting there staring at the corner of the room and she doesn't respond to her name the first time I say it. I'd be like, fuck this Blair Witch shit. (laughs) Exactly. I am out. I would be like, I am so sorry. I've got to go. And I would be miles down the road before my sentence was over. (laughs) Yeah, it, it was already creepy as hell, but it becomes this amazing chaotic scene and everything happens very quickly from this point out. So you have the discovery uh, that mother is indeed dead 
and she is just a mummified version of who she used to be. Uh, Lila screams and throws her hand back, and it hits the light that is hanging from the ceiling, and so now it's swinging back and forth. So now we have this changing light going th- through the room, this mm-hmm. crazy swaying back and forth between good and evil, dark and light, and it signifies two sides of something. And at that moment, you hear a screaming, and around the corner and into the fruit cellar comes Norman, dressed as mother, wig and all, and he is brandishing a knife and is going for Lila. But just in the nick of time, Sam has recovered and runs in and is able to restrain Norman, uh, who just goes crazy. Yeah, yeah, he goes crazy. He also kind of melts a little bit. (laughs) He is doing something... I don't know if this is a painful process for him. <laughs> he is, there is a look of anguish on his face. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it is, it is a crazy, crazy moment. Yeah. Well, this is almost where Hitchcock intended the movie to end. I believe he did intend to have the moment at the very end where we do see Norman being held uh, and we have his little mother's monologue there at the end. But the studio insisted that some people wouldn't understand what was going on. So we had to have this final scene of exposition with the psychologist explaining how it was Norman who killed his mother and her lover and took on the persona of his mother. And and he had to give this whole explanation as to what a split personality is and how more and more that other personality that he created of his mother was taking over and it was technically his mother that was doing the killing not Norman and he wasn't in control in those times and so the studio felt that really needed to be explained yeah I thought that was interesting because well a I didn't know that that was purposeful in that manner but I know when I was watching it I kind of felt myself asking myself like why is this put it it felt redundant right was this necessary yeah exactly and especially because you do have that basically crescendo of the scene of finding out the big twist and everything like that it seems like this weird i guess fall down off the top of the roller coaster into this like mundane part of what it's like okay yeah yeah we get that we get that and so i was expecting like okay is there gonna be another twist like it's I know that twist happens. Mm-hmm. Like, is there something else that I'm not really aware of? And, and and it doesn't really go that direction. So it's interesting that they felt that they needed to put that in there for that reason. Yeah. Well, you hit the nail on the head. That's that's precisely the problem that Hitchcock had with it, is that it stopped the momentum of the film. Mm-hmm. We have this huge moment and this big reveal, and now you're going to bring it to a screeching halt so we can explain what just happened. Mm-hmm. And you know, Hitchcock gave his audience a lot more credit, obviously, than the studio did. And they really felt like there had to be some sort of explanation there. Mm-hmm. So we have that moment, but then we still do get this really fantastic moment again that is acted just by Perkins' face. Mm-hmm. Because we have this monologue being spoken by Norman's mother, but yet it is coming from the mind of Norman. Yeah. And he's talking about how Norman doesn't exist anymore. It's now the mother. And she's saying, 
well, I have to be quiet now. I can't let them know I'm in here because he'll try and blame it on me and Mm -hmm. try and make them think it was me who did this. And as long as I just be quiet, then they'll understand that I couldn't do this. And of course, we had the famous moment where the fly lands on Norman's hand and she says, see, I'm not even going to do anything to swat away that fly because I would never even hurt a fly. And like smiles at the camera. Oh, and it's so chilling. It's very sinister. And and that is the end of our film. It literally fades to black. No closing credits. Yeah, <laughs> we do get we, a the end. We do get a the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, to let you know, yes, get out of the theater. But other than that... <laughs> They're like, no, really, this is the actual end. <laughs> we promise. No more monologues. No more twists. Nothing's coming. We've, we've given you all the information you need. <laughs> but that's it. And it was... It's it's Hitchcock at his finest. Yeah, it's it's really good. I've seen um, a few of his films now, and I mean, all of them. I I feel like I like for their own unique reasons. But I I really feel like, especially now, and it could be because it's so fresh on my mind, uh, having just watched it. But I I felt like I was really enthralled with this film watching it. Yeah, I remember at one point uh, you told me that you were finding it hard to remember to take notes because you were getting so engrossed in the film. Yeah. And I said, well, that's great. That means you're enjoying it. And that is certainly the most important thing. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, then I think we should get right to our prompts. Are you ready? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. So, of course, kicking us off, what was your favorite popcorn spiller? So for me, I chose the scene where Lila's going inside uh, the Bates' house and we have the whole side scene where Sam is also occupying Norman in the parlor room and trying to keep him distracted while Lila goes in uh, to find Mama. And it's more so a popcorn spiller just because the anxiety of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, this is the one of the scenes where I had known the ending. Obviously, I knew that this was the crescendo of our scene and everything. So there was nothing really big in this part that I felt like I didn't see coming. Uh-huh. Uh, but you still find yourself rooting for her and you still find yourself rooting for Sam and them to kind of escape the situation and make it out. Okay. And so whenever Bates turns around and knocks Sam over and starts running out and Lila spots him, I more so wanted to like throw my popcorn (laughs) at the screen. Uh, But that was definitely a a popcorn spiller for me just from the anxiety intenseness of that scene. Uh, Yeah, it is. It is very well done that that whole buildup. And of course, that is that is where Hitchcock shines. And what about for you? Well, mine takes place in that time too, but mine is specifically when Lila is startled by her own reflection in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had been a very long time since I had seen this movie. And of course, I remember that scene as a whole, but I did not specifically remember her startling herself. And yeah. just kind of that moment, because we have that that tinge of music, that kind of little strings that sharpen right there. And it gets you. It was a good little, it was a good little jump. It got me. Yeah, it is a good one. I, I love that, that whole scene, obviously, of I think part of it is also finally getting to see the inside of the house. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the the whole uh, movie, it's just been kind of this looming force up next to the motel. So finally getting to enter it, I think, also deserves a popcorn moment. Because I was, like, very anxious to get inside that house and finally get to see, is it actually as creepy as it looks on the outside? <laughs> and it delivered. It did. It really did. So what was your scene stealer for this movie? Without a doubt, my scene stealer is Norman Bates. 
any time he was on screen, the way Perkins plays him in his goofy little, I keep saying childlike, but I can't think of any better way Mm -hmm. to explain that. He just really does seem like he's maybe... 10 years old yeah you know it's some the way he'll he'll kind of come running up to to the office and mm-hmm. and the way he just kind of will put his hands in his pocket i, I can't explain it he's just like a little kid and, yeah and he is mesmerizing when he's on film as norman bates yeah yeah i i absolutely agree what about you who's your scene stealer well, I initially was going to put norman bates for the exact same reason but i got to thinking about it i know we had paused it at some point to kind of, you know, take a break in the middle of the movie, get some drinks and everything. And I remember commenting on kind of our core cast, you know, as far as like Marion and Sam, Lila, Norman, you know, our main people that we really kind of interact with for an extended period of time. All of them are just so good in their own unique ways that I found myself, obviously, and we had just mentioned it, I was fully engaged in this movie and I don't I I don't know what it was I was just uh first of all the version we watched just looked really good it looked Mm -hmm. really good for being 4k and it being um from 1960 so I was already kind of amazed at how good it looked but genuinely just all of it their clothes their mannerisms the way they talked and the way they held themselves and the way they acted and reacted with each other and everything uh, I just I just think the four of them, all four of them, when they would conversate or it's just one of them on the screen, I was fully engaged. So while I absolutely think that Norman, whenever he was on the screen, I think he was meant to garner all of everybody's attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think for me, it was just the, those four people that we interacted with throughout the movie that I just w- wanted to give kudos to because they were all so good and all of them were so gorgeous too. Like I found myself thinking, I was like, this is a really good looking cast. Like they're just all beautiful people. Uh, So yeah, those four are who my scene stealers are. All right. So you chose the ensemble cast. I I think that's a perfectly acceptable scene stealer. I'm doing it. All right. Well done. (laughs) Well, then that brings us to Gorgasm. Uh, This one again is kind of hard to do. We have this old black and white movie, not a lot of gore going on here. And I know you said you were struggling with this one a bit. So what'd you end up going with? So I don't know if this is cheating. I, uh, you know, I think we, <laughs> Gorgasm, I feel like we kind of twist and create the definition of that one to to, to our liking when it comes to each movie. Uh, but for me, I, I think a lot of people would opt for the shower scene because that's one of our big quote unquote gory scenes. Mm-hmm. But for me, I ended up choosing the scene right before it, whenever he's peeking in on her, mm-hmm. just because it's so utterly creepy. Like, that's one of my biggest fears when, like, we go on, like, to Airbnbs or even hotels or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's, well, I get it, yeah. Yeah, it's just very creepy. So I think for me, obviously, that was a f- not very long after we've been first introduced to Norman. So we've just been introduced to his kind of quote-unquote normal childlike persona and now we're getting a peek into his creepy side yeah and so yeah that scene in itself really sets the tone for how creepy he is and then i just wanted to give a small nod to the mom skeleton just because i love it mummy skeleton whatever it is i love it so 
Yeah, mummy skeleton, uh, that ended up being my gorgasm. Uh, you know, the way I try and look at gorgasm is when we do these movies that we don't have a lot of what we consider to be gore, I kind of have to go with what was kind of the best kind of special effect kind of thing mm-hmm. or makeup effect. I thought the mummy looked really fantastic. It really did. Especially for back then. I mean, the the teeth is what sold it to me. Mm. Uh, they look like real old rotting teeth. And even the gums, they seem mm-hmm. to be like almost peeling or flaking away. Oh, it was it was really well done. Yeah. And the eye sockets. Oh, the eye sockets were so good. <laughs> Let's just sit here and talk all about this mummy. Oh, the mummy was going to have a wrinkly <laughs> skin. The skin was a little, uh, that was the only thing that was a little, just if I had to nick it for anything, it'd be that. But yeah. other than that, it was great. Yeah. I think that's an absolutely good good choice. And I, I think had I not written down all the reasons of why I chose the original cast, mm-hmm. I probably would have just nixed it and said mom skeleton because I feel like that's more more acceptable for orgasm <laughs> definition but uh, I, I i'm sticking with both but i absolutely agree uh mom skeleton was just just really really good and like you said especially even nowadays i was impressed at how good it was yeah yeah it's very very well done and what was your memorable mortality this movie i mean come on come on i, I mean i mean come on come on <laughs> you gonna make me say it Lay it on me. It's got to be Marion's death. It, it is near perfection. It really is so good. For me, it has always been those last 25 seconds. Mm-hmm. Just pulling out from her eye. And the way it she just doesn't flinch. Mm-hmm. Not a muscle. Yeah. Just spot on. So good. I think that that ending pullout scene's even scarier than the actual kill scene, or creepier, I guess I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because it is, it's so unnerving to sit there yeah. and know that you're, you know, for lack of a better word, staring at a dead girl. Yeah. For longer than necessary. Like I found myself being like, okay, this is all right. Yeah. We move on. Exactly. It's <laughs> like uh, I don't want to look at it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I imagine. Again, I love putting myself in the mindset of of how I think they would have reacted in the theater, mm-hmm. you know, seeing this for the first time back in 1960. Yeah. And I just imagine that had to be just mind-blowing, yeah. just horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's so good. What about you? What's your memorable mortality? So I basically did one, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Which was Arbogast. And only because, uh, again, I love the camera work here. And I even audibly mentioned it when we're watching it. I loved the um, growing kind of stairway Uh that we have as he's walking up the stairs. Um, And then whenever he's um, killed, there's this huge dramatic fall. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, of course, we don't have a lot of blood here or anything. But there is a little bit on, I think, his forehead, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just love the camera work here. I think that's really what sealed it for me. And again, because we're dealing with a movie with not many mortalities and one, you know, kind of the other one was so big and memorable, obviously. Um, I had already known about that one. I didn't know that we we would have another death in this movie. I honestly had no idea that that occurred. Mm -hmm. So for me, and this being a fresh watch for me, I think that's what made it so memorable to me. Because I was like, wow, I didn't even know we had another one of these in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So that paired with the with the 
cool camera work there. I, I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, that camera work, it's this great effect where I, I believe what they do is push in on the camera, but pull the zoom in. So it gives that effect of, you know, it looks like things are stretching and getting closer at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's very odd. But that same camera effect is used in the movie Jaws when Sheriff Brody is, is sitting on the beach and he's That's right. he's worried about people and, and mm-hmm. the sharks because he wanted to close the beaches. And yeah. we have that same when he first hears someone screaming. Yeah. We had that same kind of moment. Yeah. So it's very effective. It is. It really is. Well, of course, this brings us to the big question. Are we putting it in the vault or leaving it in the dead zone? So for me, I'll admit going into this movie, I was excited to see it. But what I had made it out to be in my head, and while I knew it was impressive and knew it was obviously uh, on everybody's top lists for re- for a reason, I always assumed it was simply because it was a Hitchcock film. I mm-hmm. thought that it was it was just for the namesake, basically. But thoroughly, you know, the name aside, I really enjoyed this film. I don't know what it was, but I, I mean, I didn't really have like. You know, usually how I can indicate if I'm enjoying the movie is, and, and this is very, you know, uh, millennial of me, but whether I'm in putting my phone down, basically. Mm-hmm. And I did find myself, like, not holding my phone or engaging on my phone and, and even obviously not taking notes when I should have been taking notes. So, right. yeah, I just, I to me, if a movie's able to do that, a movie from 1960 that's black and white that doesn't have nearly the same effects that we have nowadays, if it's able to make me feel creeped out, make me feel anxiety like horror movies do, uh, you know, keep me on the edge of my seat, despite me thinking I know what the movie's going to be about, um, still be able to throw, com- you know, some sort of twists at me. Um, I think it deserves to go in the vault. So that was probably a long-winded reasoning to say yes. You know, it, it was worth it. How exciting, as someone who is such a lover of film, to experience that with you that you saw this great film that you now appreciate so much more than you did before just because of the fact that it had been classified as a classic you Mm -hmm. were able to appreciate it for what that was Mm -hmm. but now that you've seen it and you've gotten so much enjoyment out of it uh i i think that's fantastic that's so exciting yeah yeah i'm really i'm really excited that i finally get to say that i have officially seen it in its full totality now it only took me many, many years, but we're here. I did it, and I want to vault it. <laughs> All right. Well, I certainly could not give it any more higher praise than what you just did. So all I'm going to say is I had this dang thing in the vault before we even started this podcast. I mean, <laughs> there's no question that Psycho yeah. would be in there for me. So it's a, it's a definite go for me. Well, there you go. I think this was a great week. I was... Obviously, I think that the list so far has been really fun for me. I know um, a lot of the movies, if not all of them, I can't remember now. I think you've seen, but quite a few of these are have been new to me uh, this week and next week's is also new to me. And I'm having fun getting to experience them with you, but also experiencing them with for the podcast. I think it's it's allowing me to enjoy them more because I'm able to kind of break them down more and it, mm-hmm. and it is allowing me to see those small details uh, that I often miss so yeah I think it's been really fun and I'm glad that 
The first time I got to see this movie was in this capacity because I was able to notice the subtle nuances and, and everything like that. So it was definitely a fun movie. I recommend to those that have not seen it. Well, that's going to do it for us. Episode number eight is... In the can. In the can. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Dead Zone Drive-In on your favorite listening platform. And if you're looking for a way to support us, we would be so grateful if you would leave a rating and or review. And if you screenshot that review and send it to us, we're going to send you... Your very own Dead Zone Drive-In sticker for free. That's no money's honey. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at deadzonedrivein at gmail.com. And if you're wanting to reach us by snail mail, our address is P.O. Box 12665, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, 73157. We'll be sure to pick it up while we're driving through our hometown. Also, don't forget to check out the Linktree URL down in our show notes to check out our socials and our letterbox so you can keep up with all the movies we're watching. Lastly, be sure to seek us out next week as we'll be watching The Thing. One of my favorite horror movies of all time. And a new one for me. This is going to be good. I'm very excited. Well, if you're excited as well, we want to talk about it. So come and join us in the Dead Zone Drive-In Discussion Room. Yeah, it's our new Facebook group, and it's basically a place for all of us to hang out, talk about movies, whether that be old movies, new movies, you know, we want to share trailers, movie posters, whatever you want to talk about, we're over there hanging out. All you have to do is answer three questions whenever you go to enter. I think they're just yes or no questions, and then I'll accept you in the group, and then you can hang out with all of us. I'm active in there, and Whitney's in there as well. So yeah, come over there and join us. It's been really fun hanging out with everybody. We'd love to have you. And before we go, of course, a big thank you to our house band, Slime and the Maggot Boob. Their cover of Debbie Gibson's Lost in Your Eyes at last week's screening was magical. I openly wept. Oh yeah, I had tissues everywhere. And remember, if you're looking for the Dead Zone and want to join us for a weekend screening, if you've listened to this episode in its entirety... You'll have been provided with all the information you need. Don't forget your tickets. Good night, folks, and please buckle up. We'll be waiting for you. Horror thriller. <laughs> horror thriller film. This is hard to say. Horror thriller film. Horror thriller film. This is a horror thriller. I'm so scared. Can we just say that? <laughs> Too hard to say horror thriller film. <laughs> A lot of R's, a lot of L's. You're killing me, Smalls. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.